are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, award-winning volunteer and chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is October 22nd, 2023, and this is episode 247 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll hear an interview I recently recorded at the Mariner's Museum in Newport News, Virginia. We'll also have a special Halloween-themed segment. So how's your fall going so far, Michelle? My fall's going pretty well. Um, It's going pretty fast. Things are pretty busy at school, so that always seems to make the seasons go by quickly. Yeah, I know we probably shouldn't get into a lot of detail. You're telling me uh, things are a little shorthanded at school, so I know it's it's crazy. Just a little bit short-staffed at school, so. Yeah, not unusual, I think, uh, all over the country these days. Yeah, Yeah, so I hope that gets better soon. I hope so, too. Yeah. So I do want to remind our listeners that our local group here, uh, you and I, of course, are near the New Hampshire seacoast here, and our group, Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, is holding a special Halloween event at the Kittery, Maine Lions Club at 7 p.m. next Friday, October 27th. The event will feature a presentation on haunted lighthouses with paranormal expert and author Ron Kolek, along with me. Uh, People are encouraged to wear costumes uh, to the event. We'll give a prize to the best costume. I think you're planning to be there. Is that right, Michelle? Yep, I do plan on being there. Should be fun, a very fun night. Yeah, I think so too. So again, people can go to uh, PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org, PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org to find out more about the event and to get tickets in advance. So Michelle, has anything interesting happened on this date in Lighthouse history? Why, yes, it has, Jeremy. On October 22nd, 2005, Cape St. George Lighthouse in Florida toppled into the Gulf of Mexico. A hurricane in 1995 had damaged the 1852 brick lighthouse and left it leaning. After the collapse, local volunteers formed the St. George Light Association to reconstruct the lighthouse on a more protected site. A salvage company retrieved 24,000 of the structure's 160,000 bricks from the water. Volunteers cleaned them and the bricks were used in the reconstruction, which was completed in 2008. Yeah, it's really an amazing story. Uh, the only comparable story I can think of uh, in recent years is Great Point Lighthouse in Nantucket, which collapsed in a storm in 1984 and was then rebuilt. Cape St. George Lighthouse is open to the public, and they have a cool event coming up. On October 28th and November 27th, they have sunset and full moon climbs. Go to St. George light.org s-t-g-e-o-r-g-e light st george light.org to learn more so michelle please help me tell everyone about the mariners museum in today's interview sure jeremy in 1930 the owners of the newport news shipbuilding and dry dock company in virginia were concerned for the well-being of shipyard workers at the start of the great depression The owners employed the shipyard workers to build a museum and library dedicated to promoting all things nautical and maritime. The museum complex now includes 167-acre Mariner's Lake and a 550-acre park. In the late 1990s, Congress designated the Mariner's Museum and Park as one of two institutions that together comprise America's National Maritime Museum. The other is South Street Seaport in New York City. 
The Mariners Museum is the home of the U.S. Lighthouse Society's research library, known as the Wayne Wheeler Library. The museum's exhibits include a vast art collection, boats from around the world, a first-order Fresnel lens from Cape Charles Lighthouse, and much more. There's also a lecture series and seasonal events, including the Mariners Park Fall Festival in early November. Among the museum's projects has been the conservation of archaeological material from the USS Monitor, the famous ironclad warship built for the Union Navy during the Civil War. The recovered artifacts include a revolving gun turret and a steam propulsion engine. The Monitor is the world's largest marine archaeological metals conservation project. Today's guest, Jennifer Anielski, is the librarian at the Mariners Museum. I spoke with Jennifer when I stopped by the museum during my recent road trip in Virginia and North Carolina. She was a great host, and I was very impressed by her enthusiasm and the museum itself. So let's go ahead and listen to my conversation with Jennifer Anielski now. I am speaking uh, today with Jennifer Anielski, who is the librarian for the Mariners Museum at Newport News, Virginia. And I am visiting this museum today for the first time in my life. It's very exciting. Uh, the first order lens that's on display here is incredible. It's one of the things we'll talk about today. Uh, but anyway, thank you so much for joining me today, Jennifer. Of Are, course, happy sh- to be here. Right, well I should actually say thank you for hosting me here, for being so uh, of course. so hospitable and generous. So. Thanks. Uh, I was reading, but of course I, I Googled you a little bit uh, leading up to this. I hope you don't mind me Googling you. But I was reading, I think it was on LinkedIn, about your job here uh, described uh, actually quite a few things you do. You are the librarian at the museum. But from what I was reading, I think you do, not that librarians don't do a lot in general, but I think you do more than people might necessarily think uh, when they think of what a librarian does. Without going into you know minute detail, could you say a little bit about what your job entails here? Absolutely. Well, I do what all what everybody thinks of a librarian doing, mm-hmm. as far as uh, working with guests and researchers who want to see material, uh, and we are a department of two. So it's myself as a librarian, and there is a library assistant. Okay. So all the in-depth technical stuff that boards everybody else to sleep. Mm -hmm. I do that as well. Mm -hmm. But I am also on a committee that selects um, and makes the decisions on what material comes into the museum's collection. And here, we say the museum has one collection. Mm -hmm. It is made up of the archives, the books, and the objects. So there is a team of us that do that. So it's pretty exciting. Um, I've also been fortunate to have worked here for almost 23 years. Wow. So I'm kind of really loving it here. I have no plans to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it's a good fit for you and the museum. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm, there is uh, probably somebody with the title of curator, right? We have a few different curators. A few curators. Uh, so our curators are a little different than um, what most people are used to. They're used to specialists. Mm-hmm. Our curators are actually more generalists. And so what they do is when we get a research question, they will dive in depth into it. Mm -hmm. Um, We know where the specialists are. So when we were researching our Chinese junk, we knew who to contact for the exacts. But we dive into the cultural heritage. Uh, We will take a different view where we look at an object and go, why is that that way? 
And it's something as simple as, why is the rope connected through the rudder? Mm -hmm. It seems weird. So that's kind of where our curators go. Right. That makes a lot of sense to me. You're after the story behind the object. Often it's the human story, but yes. why, why is it the way it is? And exactly, that human story. Yeah, I was just a few weeks ago talking to a man who's the uh, historian and considered the ambassador for the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum in Maryland, and uh, he said virtually the same thing. <laughs> so we do work with them. Do you? Yes. Do you know Pete Lesher? I do. Yeah. yeah uh, he's actually a really good uh, person to work with, and our uh, vice president of collections and senior curator, Lyles Forbes, does a lot of work with Pete as well. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. Oh, Pete, I was really uh, happy to speak with Pete, he was great. So, uh, as you've uh, alluded to, the obviously the Mariner's Museum here is a very extensive library and archives. Do you have any numbers? Like how big is it? <laughs> so on the library side, mm -hmm. which would be the books, the periodicals, uh, anything that's more mass-produced, uh, we are responsible for approximately 110,000 volumes. Okay. Um, the archives is a whole lot harder to count because that's a lot of single sheets of paper. Um, we estimate um, several million. Mm -hmm. um, we probably have definitely over a million photographs or photographic type materials, and it just escalates from there. It's kind of cumulative in a way, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, yeah, as the museum has yes. gotten older. Uh, and we still collect, so yeah. things are coming in all of the time. Yeah, yeah. So huh. one of the things we also say is um, we have a backlog, but that's a good thing because that means we are processing what mm -hmm. was donated and we still have material coming in. Yeah. So it's a little weird for people to go, why is that backlog good? Yeah. But that means you have material coming in and we know what's in the collection, big picture, it's that diving into that item level that takes the time. Sure. I'm wondering about topics that are covered, but that's probably a hard question to answer because I'm sure it's almost like infinite, I'm sure. Well, but. that's, Basically, um, if you've seen our mission, which is about connecting people to one another through the water, mm -hmm. um, which connects us to our cultural and maritime heritage, our collecting focus, uh, which the museum was founded in 1930, has always been um, our relationship with water, mm -hmm. whether it's an ocean, a river, a sea, um, a stream, and then so it's also international in scope. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we have in the library and the archives that's a little weird for a maritime library is uh, on flora and fauna of Virginia. Okay. And that's huh. because when the museum was founded, yeah. it wasn't just the museum. It was the museum and our park. So we have research for all of the plantings that were done in the archives. They actually have the plats that show where everything was planted originally. Oh, okay. We, um, we opened our lake back up this year, and um, some of our park department will take people out on kayaks and can point out some of the original plantings. Mm -hmm. I do want to talk about the, the park some more before we're finished. But sure. Maybe, uh, talk about a few other things uh, before that. You have uh, at least some of the collection available online for researchers, is that right? Correct, so our online catalog, um, which you can find from the museum's website, mm -hmm. is there and it allows you to search the objects, 
the library, the archives, and the monitor collection, which mm -hmm. is technically not, well, it's not technically, it is not the museums. We are just fortunate to house it, kind of like the lighthouse societies. We have a record that shows all of the materials that are here, but we don't own them. Mm -hmm. We are just entrusted to care for them. Right. Uh, all of the books are online. The archives, as they are going through and processing the collections, those are going up. And our approximately 36,000 objects are in that online catalog as well. Wow. So. With, when you say uh, photographs and objects, actual images online? Or, or? For most of the objects, there is an image. Um, mm -hmm. The archives, there's not a whole lot of images up yet. Um, mm -hmm. But every day we are working with our digital services department to digitize mm -hmm. and put up. Um, and it, you mentioned photographs. We can write a description of a photograph, but that means nothing to our researchers. So we want to make sure that we get those scanned and those go up too. Mm -hmm. But again, that's a million photographs and to properly catalog each photograph is approximately 15 to 20 minutes each. Yeah. I don't have that time. <laughs> <laughs> do you have interns helping with any of this? We do. Um, so the archives is a staff of seven. Mm -hmm. um, we have one person whose sole focus is she is our photo archivist and photo curator. Um, and we do have volunteers and interns that come and help. Uh, it's just a long, drawn-out process that we didn't actually start digitizing and putting them online until probably about the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. So we're playing catch-up as fast as we can. Well, isn't everybody? Yes. <laughs> uh, the National Archives certainly hasn't digitized everything they have. No. <laughs> you know, anybody with a collection anywhere near your size, it's never finished. Nope. <laughs> no, because no, every time we do put something up, something else somebody, comes in. Something else comes in or somebody contacts us and says, hey, I saw you put this up. Did you know that that's actually the blah, blah, blah? Mm -hmm. And we will happily record that, make notes of all of that. Because in some cases, we have an image of a ship. In this case, let's just pick on a ship, an image of a ship. We may know that, oh, yeah, that happens to be the Enterprise, mm -hmm. but we don't know where it was taken, when it was taken, and if they can put the context and the story to it. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've found stuff in the National Archives, both when I was there and online in their digitized collection where it'll be a, a lighthouse with the wrong name on it, the wrong, you know, totally wrong place, whatever. We're guilty of that too, but we are happy to correct yeah. it. Well, none of us is perfect. Yeah. yeah as long as you're willing to, to correct mistakes, of course. So you were just kind enough to show me the actual physical home of the U.S. Lighthouse Society Library uh, that is actually known as the Wayne Wheeler Library. Of course, uh, I'm sure a lot, I know a lot of our listeners know that Wayne Wheeler was the founder of the U.S. Lighthouse Society just about 40 years ago. Yeah. Next year will be the 40th anniversary of the... I didn't know that yeah, part. 1984. It started pretty much on Wayne Wheeler's dining room table. Back I then. heard about the dining room table, but I didn't realize it had been 40 years. Yeah, it wow. just occurred to me the next year is the 40th anniversary. But um, so it was really neat for the first time for me to see that physical archives. We have a large digital archives, which I'm involved with personally, but um, the physical archives is pretty impressive too, the li research library. How is that, how accessible is that to researchers? It's super accessible. 
what we will do is they can either call or email us, and that's an easy library at marinersmuseum.org um, email, and we will set up a research time where they can come in. I will meet them at the front, escort them to our research room, and they are welcome to scan through as much of the collection as they can get through in a day. Mm-hmm. We are here Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Mm-hmm. Um, if they need to book multiple days, that's fine. We have a uh, book scanner that we can scan material for them. We are happy to have them come in. If they can't make it, they need something looked up, give us a shout. We're happy to do the research as well. Mm -hmm. We just are so thankful that the material is here because it fills a gap in our collection and to myself and the rest of the staff here at the museum, it is a partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lighthouse Society is able to get more of the fact of what the museum has out to the world, yeah. and we are able to house it and use it for research and let more of our local audience know. Sure. Yeah, well, it's, it's an amazing library for a lighthouse nut like me. Not only, I don't know how many thousands of book titles are in it, but... Uh, lots and lots of uh, important government documents and so forth that otherwise you'd have to probably go to the National Archives to yes. find a lot of those. If you knew what you were looking for. Right. Probably <laughs> easier to find. Sometimes it's hard to find that way. Yes, I know from experience. Mm-hmm. So probably a lot easier to find here. And also periodicals, the Keeper's Log, the U.S. Lighthouse Society, yes. and Lighthouse Digest. And the postcards. And the postcards, the Herb Carpenter postcard collection, which are pretty much digitized in the... Uh, Digital archives, USLHS, and also the online research catalog. But it was nice to see the see the boxes of postcards there in person. And where yeah. they live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, of course, one of the things that drew my attention, it's one of the first things you see coming into the museum, again, as a lighthouse nut and a Fresnel lens nut. <laughs> uh, you, of course, have a first-order Fresnel lens from Cape Charles Lighthouse. And it's just, you know, uh, there's no words for these things. You know, gorgeous, beautiful, it doesn't do it justice. You were making a phone call a little while ago, and I took photos of it from every possible angle. Mm -hmm. It's just absolutely so beautiful. That must draw a lot of lighthouse buffs to this museum. It does. Mm -hmm. Um, And even those that aren't lighthouse buffs, that they walk in, and because of the placement, when you are walking up from guest services, the first thing people will see is the light moving on mm-hmm. the wall. And people that aren't familiar with lighthouses, it's that, what is that? And they're immediately looking, and then it's like, wow, <laughs> and yeah. what is that? And then the flip side is we have the lighthouse enthusiasts who know exactly, and they're just standing there because you can stand underneath, basically, and look up and see it. It's just amazing. Mm-hmm. And to have it operational is just great. It, it is. It is. It's one of the, the nicest lens displays I've, I've seen. As, uh, Thank you. When I was just looking at it a little while ago, there was a man setting up some chairs for a function, and I started chatting with him about it, and he was very interested. He didn't know some of the background. But uh, when most people, when they see them, are just so taken by them. They want to learn more. I was looking in the, uh, the catalog, the, the search uh, function on, on the website, and apparently there's also a sixth order lens in the museum. I haven't had a chance to see the whole museum yet. So uh, am I correct in that? We have a sixth order lens. Um, it is not on display at the moment, oh, okay. however. 
but I can tell you a little bit about it. Mm -hmm. And I will also tell you that if that is something that somebody wanted to see, mm -hmm. um, if we knew ahead of time, we would try to make arrangements for you to be able to see it. Um, yeah. Not of all of our material is out on display. Mm -hmm. um, we just have so much and we have to keep rotating it. But our six order lens, uh, we, the museum acquired um, as a purchase in 1939 mm. in Detroit. Uh, we had one of our buyers that was out and saw it for sale and picked it up. Mm -hmm. We don't know where it was used. Right. But what we do know is that it had been modified um, because it was originally designed to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And they have altered it and put reflector lenses in it. So oh. it had to have had some special duty in order for it to have had those modifications. Interesting. Interesting. I was going to say sixth order lenses are fairly rare. Of course, very small. They're small. Smallest ones we use in this country. I think over in England they had even smaller. I can't imagine what those look I like. I know. Yeah, they're <laughs> like a little uh, model <laughs> lenses. But um, that's really interesting. Maybe I'd love to see that sometime. Beside the uh, first order lens and the sixth order lens you have in storage, would you say there's anything else? Obviously, it's all related. All of this, uh, you know, uh, works together. Maritime history in general, lighthouses are one aspect of it. But is there anything else specifically lighthouse related in the in the museum? Yes. Okay. Um, so it hits all three sides um, of the collecting focus. So not only do we have books on the library side. Uh, some of those including um, one of my favorite books to pull out when we're doing tours is uh, we have an early, well, 1870s specification of um, Eddystone Lighthouse that shows the construction. Mm -hmm. The images are just stunning. Yes. So we'll pull those out. Um, the archives obviously has photographs. We actually have two journals from uh, Keepers. One is a Keepers log from the 1870s. Uh, from Whiteshell, Virginia. And then the other one that I know of um, records an inspector who was traveling up the Chesapeake Bay and oh, wow. looking at um, all of the lighthouses at the wow. time. Wow, that's unusual. And I mean, yeah. that is something that if anybody wanted to see it, we would be happy to pull it out and let them take a look at it. Is there much detail in it, do you remember? I don't know off the yeah. top of my head. Because some, you know, some people kept logs and would just write the very bare bones, yeah. but others Saw would this. elaborate a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I honestly don't know, but I would be happy to um, have it pulled and just scan a couple pages for you and mm -hmm. email you about it. I would love that. Not very, very problem. curious what's in there. Could be yeah. a possible article about it or something. Waiting to, waiting to happen. Of course. Yeah. Um, that's the best part about an archives is there's always something new to discover. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sure. So you mentioned a little while ago the Monitor, the USS Monitor, mm -hmm. which is certainly one of the most famous vessels in American history. We like to think so. Yeah. What exactly is here? So about, and I'm going to cheat and pull out, look at some numbers right quick. Sure. But about one-fifth of the Monitor was excavated, um, which means it was brought up from off North Carolina's coast, um, and those parts and pieces were brought to the mariners. Some of the pieces are still undergoing treatment. Uh, some of them have finished treatment and are actually out on display. Mm -hmm. uh, we are very fortunate that um, we were chosen to be the place that housed it and um, cares for it. So we have a great partnership with NOAA, uh, uh, with that. Um, yeah. The turret is amazing for those that 
have been here, they'll tell you it's an experience like no other. We allow you to um, walk up some stairs, and you can look into the lab. And when you're looking in, you can actually look in and look down inside the turret. Mm -hmm. uh, certain times of the year, they actually drain it um, when they're changing the water and retesting things. And to see it totally empty is just to think what was in there and yeah. the number of people. Um, it's very moving. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not going to have time to see the whole museum today, but I hope to see that before well, I leave. You are time. always welcome back, and I'll make sure we take you up there beforehand. Okay, great. I was thinking about the conservation of, of that. Of course, it's an ironclad, or it was, and, and mm -hmm. uh, so probably talking about a lot of encrustation on the yes on the metal. So there's uh, multiple things. So mm -hmm. there's uh, dealing with the encrustation on it. Um, the metal has been sitting in salt water for mm -hmm. how long? And then you take it out, and it gets exposed to the oxygen. Um, uh, there's a lot of rubber that was used uh, oh. so that's a whole different area uh, we are very fortunate that we have several people in our conservation department that are focused on the monitor and they are becoming some of if i will say becoming um, but some, most of them are actually leading experts in ways of conservation um, it's just amazing mm -hmm. dry ice blasting they actually have done that on pieces of the monitor i when you I, hear that, you kind of go, wait a minute, that's a historic artifact, and you're going to dry ice blast it? They've done it. It's amazing. Yeah. The research they put out on it, which is available in the library, too. Mm -hmm. I don't understand it, but it's just amazing. Yeah, that's something I've never heard about. I know I've seen, I'm trying to think of what museum, I think it was actually, the, there's a museum in Provincetown, Massachusetts, at the end of the Cape, Cape Cod, that was conserving some some cannons from a shipwreck and had them some kind of like electrolyte solution. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing our turret is in, just in a bigger format. Yeah, yeah. And the guns, um, we actually did bore out the guns um, that were taken off monitor. Mm -hmm. So um, that whole process of well, we think about it. Cannons have been sitting underwater, so you've got the interior crustacean as well. Um, they mm -hmm. were able to uh, develop a way to clean them out totally. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. They didn't find the cat, though. There's a story of the monitor that it had a cat on board okay. and that it was uh, placed in the guns as it was sinking. We have not found proof of that yet. Oh, uh, well, that'd be Which, to me, is a good thing because that means I was going to say, no that'd cat. be kind of sad. I don't know if I'd want to find that, <laughs> even though it's a long time ago. So you mentioned also a while ago the park, yes. Mariner's Park, which is a, a big part of the the place here, and it's it's pretty huge, right? Yes, uh, it's uh, massive. I don't even remember the square footage. Off I'm the thinking top like, of it. is it like 500 acres? Did I see that? Uh, is it probably that? 550. Um, than the that. 550 sounds about right. That does sound right. Um, yeah. We have uh, so when the museum was founded, mm -hmm. it was uh, the park or the museum with the park around it. Mm -hmm. um, we have a lake. Mm -hmm. Mariner's Lake was actually man-made. We created it uh, during the founding. We actually have photos showing the building of the Lions Bridge, which is down by the James River. And the park was set up with certain plantings. Um, the lake, uh, about 10 years ago, we had to close. Oh, sorry, 15 years ago. We had to close because of the runoff and the water level um, and just the conditions of the water for the environment were not great. Mm -hmm. We spent that time working on it, trying to um, 
when we talk about conservation, which I know we kind of touched on with the monitor, but we do it with our living collection as mm -hmm. well. So our education department works um, with several schools and the kids come in and get to do um, eelgrass plantings mm. to help the water quality. So it's kind of a cyclical effect all around. But our, we've put uh, boats back on the water after 15 years of being um, closed to the public. So. People are loving it. Mm -hmm. We have a five-mile trail. Um, people can come use it for free. Mm -hmm. The park is for free. Um, we are actually doing a big festival. We do the fall festival once a year. Um, it's in November. And included with that, but is not a requirement, is a 50K race. Oh, wow. It's a group race, but yes, 50K is a lot. <laughs> So 50K is probably like 30, 30 miles or something like that? So it's longer than a marathon? Probably. Yeah. Wouldn't surprise me. Wow. It's amazing to watch like people run through it. Mm -hmm. um, but not a day goes by in the park where you don't see people, rain, snow. Mm -hmm. um, and we have wildlife in the park, too. So we have deer, mm -hmm. uh, foxes, skunks. Um, but honestly, the deer are my favorite. They, were, um, they are the result of crossbreeding because Anna Huntington wanted a particular type of deer to hmm. sculpt, and she, like, bits of this one she and bits created of that her one. Own. <laughs> so she kind of created her own. Wow, interesting. What a, what a great thing to combine the natural environment with uh, everything yeah. else here. And we tell people that we have two collections. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the what I call the indoor collection, so the inside, and then our living collection, which is the animals, the trees, the water. Conservation being the heart of everything we do, that applies to both. So I was also looking on the website, it looked like there's a lot of uh, youth programs for students, probably other uh, youth groups. Are, do you have a lot of, you must have a lot of school groups come into the museum here. Well, they not only come in, mm -hmm. but we go to them both physically and virtually. Mm -hmm. We have uh, two sets, our, some of our curators serve um, our school-aged children, and then we actually have our education department whose focus is the school age child um, and particularly in the schools but they have done programs in the museum on the lake they will go to the schools and do programs and for people who cannot make it or are too far for us to travel to they've done um, virtual programs with them as well mm -hmm. and then in the curatorial side for those that aren't necessarily you're looking at maybe pre-k or the summer programs um, they do outreach all of the time um, but I also tell them that their school age is everyone. They have done programs for two, three-year-olds all the way up. It's just amazing mm -hmm. to see them interacting and get the excitement going. Yeah, well, I'm sure. That's great. Uh, so you, you mentioned uh, events a little bit earlier, but uh, I'm wondering if you want to expand on that at all, about events the museum has, but also uh, you must have like a lecture series, is that right? We do have a lecture series. Uh, we actually have multiple lecture series. Mm -hmm. So uh, about once a month, we, um, our advancement department will bring in an author or a speaker to come in and talk about whether it's their book or a certain topic. We're very fortunate um, with housing the monitor that uh, John Corstein is close by and he comes in and does uh, talks regarding the monitor and aspects of the Civil War as well. Mm -hmm. 
but we do uh, special programs, special events, as well as the lecture series. And those are also done, um, many of those are done virtually and physically. So people don't have to be here in order to attend. That is great. We're kind of trying to do the same thing with the U.S. Lighthouse Society, and I feel like I need to look closely at what you're doing. Yes. I was just wondering, uh, Jennifer, uh, you are so, uh, you've been here 23 years, you're so knowledgeable, and, and such a, I think, uh, obviously an important part of what's, what's going on here. How did that happen? How did you come to, come to this museum in the first place? Uh, it actually wound up being pure luck. I had finished my undergraduate in art administration and was working in Williamsburg at the time and knew I kind of wanted to get back into libraries, but I loved museums. Mm -hmm. My first job ever at the age of 16 was in a library, okay. so that kind of gives you an idea to start with. Happened to see the position listed for a library assistant. I think the stars aligned and I was able to get the job. Uh, and then while here, um, I was encouraged by my boss and the uh, president of the library at the time to go get my degree. So mm -hmm. I was able to work full time and get my degree. Excellent. And it's just, again, the stars aligned just right. <laughs> so I've been able to yeah. stay. The rest I is history. It. The rest is history. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, the stars definitely aligned for everybody, I think. I, I have no plans to go anywhere. Yeah. I tell them, well, that's not true. I tell them they have 16 and a half years left, and when then you, I'm retiring. <laughs> you'll be what, third? No, you'll be I'll 40. I'll be, no, <laughs> no. No, you don't have to say. I'll be 61. Yeah. Well, that's, a, that's still a kid. Well, okay. Yeah. My husband works for the state, so I got mm -hmm. an advantage there. <laughs> okay. So I have one final question for you for okay. bonus points. Okay. That question is, what is your favorite thing, or it could be multiple things, uh, about the work you do at the Mariner's Museum? And it's, that could probably go on for days. Well, I think the easiest way to answer that is the fact that no two days here have ever been the same. And every day, not only am I learning something, I am helping someone else discover something about themselves or their history as well. Mm -hmm. And that makes my day. That is what I am here to do. That's beautiful. I love that. Perfect. Yeah, it is perfect. It is perfect. Jennifer Anielski, it's such a pleasure to be at this museum for the first time and to, to meet and talk with you. I'd heard such uh, glowing things about you from, uh, from Jeff Gales, oh. our director, and, and others. So it's, it's wonderful to be here. I really appreciate your time today. And uh, keep up the good work. And thank you so much for your hospitality here oh, today. Oh, well, thank you for coming. Go to marinersmuseum.org to learn more about the Mariners Museum. For research questions, you can email the library at library at marinersmuseum.org or call them at 757-591-7782. Anyone visiting that part of Virginia needs to go to the Mariners Museum. And if you meet Jennifer Nielski while you're there, please be sure to tell her you heard her interview on Lighthearted. So next, we're going to talk about one of the most famous lighthouse ghost stories in America, just in time for Halloween. And before I turn it over to you, Michelle, I just want to play a little little sound effect to set the stage for this. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Is that spooky enough? That's very spooky. <laughs> I think that definitely sets the mood. Okay, good. 
So St. Augustine Lighthouse in Florida holds occasional dark of the moon tours focused on the light station's ghostly legends. In 1873, during the construction of the tower that stands today, three young girls, including two daughters of the man supervising the construction, drowned in an accident involving a railway cart that was used to deliver supplies. Many people have claimed the lighthouse is haunted by the spirits of the Pity Sisters. That's P-I-T-T-E-E, Sisters. Yeah, many of the stories seem to indicate that the sisters are playful spirits. During one of the Dark of the Moon tours, a female visitor suddenly found that her shoelace was mysteriously tied to the stairs as she began to climb. There are also other ghost stories at St. Augustine Lighthouse. Peter Rasmussen was the light's longest-serving keeper, serving 23 years in the early 1900s. It's been reported that you can smell Rasmussen's cherry-scented tobacco in the tower. It's also reported that the spirits of the first keeper, William Harnes, and his wife Kate are sometimes sensed in the 1876 Keeper's House. We are now going to listen to a short interview with Ralph Krugler, a good friend of this podcast. Ralph is the historian for the Hillsborough Inlet Lighthouse in Florida. And of course, he does a lot of great work for the U.S. Lighthouse Society uh, on the research catalog and YouTube videos, among other things. Ralph had a really, really interesting story about St. Augustine Lighthouse, an experience he had there. So let's listen to that now. Speaking this afternoon with my good friend Ralph Krugler in Florida, and uh, Ralph, of course, is the historian for the Hillsborough Inlet Lighthouse and does all kinds of good stuff for the U.S. Lighthouse Society on the research catalog and uh, interview uh, videos of his own as well. And uh, so great to talk to you today, Ralph. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Uh, I don't necessarily think that ghost stories have to be uh, talked about in the Halloween season, but it seems like uh, that's the way uh, a lot of people see it. So we are very much into the Halloween season at this point. And you and I were just just talking uh, recently or emailing back and forth, and you happened to mention to me that you had an interesting experience. And of course, St. Augustine Lighthouse in Florida is one of the ones that has quite a reputation for ghost stories. But when you mentioned that you had your own experience, you haven't told me any detail about it yet. I'm extremely curious. So can you set the stage and, and tell us the story? Sure. Back in 2013, my wife and I spent the weekend up in St. Augustine. I told her, look, I'm going to spend probably the whole day at the lighthouse. They had different programs that I got tickets for, and she went for some of them. And the one she wanted to be a part of was the one they do at night. It's called the Dark of the Moon Tour, sort of ghost hunting one. Mm-hmm. She'd been on for a while. I took her back to the hotel. She, she can do her own thing. And I wanted to do the night one for a couple of reasons. One, I wanted to be in a lighthouse at night and I was hoping to be by myself because that's just such a cool thing. Yeah. Uh, number two, I was just getting into trying to figure out night photography. And I figured if I was up close to the lighthouse at night, I'm going to get a great perspective, great learning experience. And three, if I saw or heard anything while there, hey, cool. That's just an added bonus. So I go back and pick up my wife. And as we're driving across the bridge, she goes, so do you think we're going to see anything tonight? I just, I laughed. I'm like, no, of course not. It's not the way it works. Uh huh. So when we get there, I'm taking some more pictures and she's just kind of anxious to see what's going to happen. They have everybody gathered together and they give you a lanyard and on well, at the time they did. And it had a, uh, um, a glow stick on there because they had a lot of people hopping over the fences at night. 
jumping in for free on the tours. So this way they knew you're part of the tour. So we got our lanyards and we go into the keeper's dwelling and the guy who was running at the time, he was fabulous. I mean, he really set the stage. He really put your mind in a vulnerable position where you're going to think every little thing is going to be a ghost. Uh-huh. He did a great job. Like he even said, of course, just last week, there was a lady here and she felt she got hit, grabbed by a child's hand and was sitting in that chair right there. You know, of course, everybody looks. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he was great at it. So everybody's all geeked up for it. And when they got done with the tour, he said, okay, if you want K2 meters, um, you can grab these. Or if you want to just use your cameras, whatever you guys want to do. And I was really surprised by the access they allowed us. I don't know if it's still this, that way now, but they pretty much let you run anywhere on the, on the site that you wanted to. So we go outside. My wife kind of walks around. She's looking at some stuff and I'm, taking pictures and, and I'm listening to these people. Nobody's going near the lighthouse. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the stories are that the keeper's children got killed there during um, the early stages. And it was the children in the dwelling or in the lighthouse that you're going to see them the most, or you're going to see the keeper in the lighthouse. That's where you're going to mm-hmm. get the most experiences, but everybody's running around outside and it's grass, gravel, and you know, what else? And everybody's running around with their cameras I'm listening to these idiots going, look at all these orbs. Look at all these ghosts. We're surrounded by ghosts. I'm like, in my head, I'm like it's dust. It's dirt. It's bugs. It, you know, whatever. But I'm just like I'm just taking my pictures, enjoying myself. And when I got enough, I figured, okay, I'm going to go inside the lighthouse because nobody's gone in there. Okay. Right? Perfect. So the lights are out. Now I'd seen the ghost hunters episode where they'd been down there. And I knew that if you get to the top, the motion sensor light's going to go off. So obviously nobody's been in there. I've, I've been watching the door and I know how far you can go. Mm-hmm. So I go inside, close the door behind me. It takes a while for my eyes to adjust. And of course your eyes are playing tricks on you and trying to feel the way around. So I kind of like going off of what they saw, I was trying to see if I could see kind of the same thing. So I'm standing at the, you know, next to the weight pit and I'm looking up. I don't see anything, but I started hearing some muffled conversations. Okay. I go up a little bit. I still hear it. It sounds like either children or female voices. I mean, it sounds like it's coming from up top. So I got to check, make sure all the windows are closed. So I go up as far as I can. Windows are shut. Go back down. And I'm when I got higher up there, the conversation stopped. So when I went back down, the conversation starts again. So I, I go outside and I ask my wife. And there's another lady standing there talking to her. I'm like, was there anybody running around here, you know, talking, like, just what you hear in the distance. And it's completely different from what you hear inside. I'm like, okay. They're like, why? I said, well, I can hear some voices inside. And they're like, ah, whatever. So I go back inside and I'm hearing the conversation again. So I decide, well, I'm going to go up again, but I'm going to go a little bit slower because I got about halfway and the conversation stopped. So I get about halfway and I stop. The conversation is still going. Now this time, you know, the windows are shut. There's no air movement in there. And all of a sudden the temperature just drops like, like 30 degrees. And I, I start getting chills. My hmm. hair starts standing up on my, on my arms. And I feel this breeze go whooshing right past me. And all of a sudden it's warm again. I'm like, okay, that was weird. I didn't see anything. I just felt a breeze. But again, double check the windows. There's nothing there. So I go and I'm like, okay, conversation kind of stopped again. So I go back down to the bottom. Conversation starts again. So I go outside and I tell my wife, I'm like, look, you got to come in here. And the other girl came in too. I didn't say anything this time. Just tell me what you think. We hear voices. Okay, what kind? Either children or women. Okay, great. So I'm like, stay down here and see if you can still hear them when I go up. So when I go up, I get maybe to the, the third landing and I stop. And this time the conversation is still going, 
and I'm hearing a couple of footsteps coming down. Okay, well, that's interesting. So I'm not moving. And just like what they saw in, in the episode of Ghost Hunters, where they saw the keeper coming down the stairs, I see a man in full keeper's uniform, like he's ready for inspection day, walking down the stairs, his hand is on the rail, he's looking down, and then he gets towards the landing, he stops, he looks up, his eyes kind of go wide. And I'm like, oh my, I'm like, excuse oh. me, sir. And he turns around and he, you think you signed bold as fast? This guy was gone like a flash. Like he turned around and it was a black flash and he was gone. <laughs> and I'm like running after him, like, wait, wait, wait. Like, I just want to talk to you. I just want to talk to you, please, sir. I'm like, wait, wait. And I, I'm getting closer to the top and I know that the motion sensor light's going to go off if I get too far. And I'm as far as I can go, like, well, you know, I don't see him anymore. I don't hear the voices. But now I have to check the door to see if it's locked up top. So I go up there, the lights come on, and I go to the door, and it's a, it's a heavy door. That there's no way you can sneak in or out of it, and it's locked. So I'm like, this wasn't some guy playing a prank. Mm -hmm. This was an actual, you know, keeper that I saw. Wow. So I walk back down the stairs, and I get to the bottom, and you know, of course, all the lights are on, and my wife goes, "What happened?" And then I tell her, she's like, wow. It's like, yeah, we saw you looking over the, the railing a couple of times ago. What are you talking about? Well, we saw you look over the railing. When? Mm -hmm. Before or after the lights went on? Well, once before or once after. Well, what did you see? Well, we saw you, you had your hat on because I was wearing a, a ball cap. And I'm like, did you see it with the brim this way? Because I had my turn backward, head turns backward. Because when I was taking camera, you know, shots of the camera, Bill kept taking the camera. So I turned it around. I never bothered to turn it back. Right. You're like, Oh yeah, no, it was the other way. Okay, and I lean, I go back up the stairs and go, and I lean over it. Now my my lanyard with the glow stick is hanging over. Go, Did you see this? Go, no. Mm -hmm, go, mm -hmm. Okay, you didn't see me at all. <laughs> like, yeah. oh my gosh, that's so cool. Wow. So, yeah. So we go outside, and now the guy who's running the thing, you know, he he walks over, and goes, "You okay?" I go, "Yeah." I just you won't believe what I saw, and I tell him, he "Goes, oh yeah, that's keeper." And I can't remember what his name was. He goes, "Yeah, that's, uh -huh. he's the one you see all the time." So that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've, it's been an interest of mine for a long time, this sort of stuff. I always call myself a, uh, an open-minded skeptic. So I, I, I don't believe every story I hear, but I believe what you're telling me. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had interesting experiences. I've very distinctly heard a voice in Portsmouth Harbor lighthouse that I can't explain. I'm one of a number of people who's heard that kind of thing. But I have not seen a full-bodied apparition <laughs> the way what you describe. It was that wild. is absolutely incredible. And you mentioned the Ghost Hunters show. They, in the show, they actually show pretty much what you're describing, mm -hmm. where they saw a figure leaning over the at the top of the stairs and looking down just for mm -hmm. a brief couple of seconds or whatever. But it's pretty distinct. In 2000. It's seven or eight, somewhere around there. Um, the Ghost Hunters crew came to Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse in New Hampshire here mm -hmm. and did a show. Uh, I was the client in the show. And at one point I asked uh, Chris Williams, who was in the cast, uh, what has been your favorite episode you've done? And she said immediately St. Augustine. <laughs> yeah, that was her favorite. And she uh, said something about, I don't know what it is about lighthouses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, yeah, yeah. Well, that is incredible. So you mentioned the the kids, you heard voices and everything. And there is the story that's told a lot. I think it was actually the man who was overseeing construction yes, of the lighthouse. Yeah, named that's Pitty, right. P-I-T-T-E-E. -E. And I think it was a couple of his daughters plus another girl who died in like a cart accident. In the water. Yeah, on the Marine Rail. It crashed and they all got killed. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so that uh, is used uh, to explain a lot of the the weird uh, things people experience there. But I believe there's also said to be the the ghost of a keeper. When I was loading up images onto uh, our archives, when I was doing St. Augustine, there's one that I uploaded, and I could swear that's the, the guy that's in that picture. He's standing outside the lighthouse. Really? Yeah. It's wow. from the National Archives pictures. That's a freaky thing to yeah. feel like you recognize him, like you actually saw him. Yeah, I don't know um, if that's the same guy, but it, that's exact, almost exactly what he looked like. I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. Um, well, let me ask you, uh, before we sign off for, for now, do you have any stories at Hillsborough Inlet Lighthouse along these lines? Inside the lighthouse, we have one story, and it was fairly recent. The, the Coast Guard had a, a phone in there. And there's phones at the base and we were doing a tour day and one of our volunteers was there and the phone starts ringing. So he walks up the stairs into the vestibule area there, picks up the phone. There's nobody there. No, no worries. Goes back down about five minutes later, phone rings again. He walks up there, picks up the phone. Hello. Nobody there. Hangs up the phone. Now the president of our organization shows up and he's like, uh, Ken, somebody's trying to call the lighthouse. He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, somebody's trying to call. He's like, I, he's like, I, I, I don't know what you mean. He's like, call where? The phone in the lighthouse. He goes, that phone hasn't been hooked up to anything for years. He goes, it can't ring. He goes, well, it rang twice. Me and my wife heard it. <laughs> so there's one. Okay. <laughs> well, I just want to interject. Um, the a guy I know who's a researcher in England wrote a book called Phone Calls from the Dead. <laughs> and they're a lot more common than you might think. I'm sure you've heard about this kind of thing where somebody will get a call from somebody, uh, just a friend, and they talk for a while, and then they find out later, oh, the person had died like the day before. <laughs> and that kind of thing is fairly common. But what you're saying, too, I've heard of that before, too, where a phone that doesn't work anymore will will work, and sometimes yeah. people get messages on it. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, but just a ring out of nowhere is pretty neat. Yeah, And then inside of the cottages, um, there's supposedly some voices and some footsteps and it kind of freaks some people out. But the person who's running the thing right now, she's like, don't talk about it. I don't want to know anything about it. And we're like, come on, let's, let's give me some kind of information. Like, no, no, I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to be freaked out here. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about anything. So we've been reached out. A couple of groups have reached out to try to get access to do investigations there. And right now they're not allowing it. So maybe mm. in the future they will. Yeah, yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you, uh, especially hearing your experience at St. Augustine, do you, or did you ever, or do you consider yourself sensitive to these kinds of things, or no. not necessarily? Just no. I've seen some weird stuff that I can't explain, but I don't consider myself sensitive at all. Yeah. Okay. Another thing you said that brought something else to mind. I was going to mention you. You, your wife said, "Do you think we'll see something?" And you <laughs> laughed. That immediately reminded me of a, a former Coast Guard lightkeeper I talked to quite a few years ago. He had been at Boone Island in Maine, which is one of the most isolated lighthouses in the country, often a little pile of rocks. And he said when he showed up there as a Coast Guard keeper in the early 1970s, said the other guys in the crew asked him if he believed in ghosts. And he laughed. He thought that was hilarious. <laughs> and they said, you're not going to be laughing for long after you live here for a while. <laughs> and he did have experiences there. And so have many other Coast Guard keepers. So yeah, that reminded me of that when you said that. But that is absolutely an incredible story. And uh, I'm sure there's probably other uh, ghost related things we could we could chat about. Maybe we can do that some other time. But <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing your your incredible experience at St. Augustine Lighthouse. Thanks. So thank you, Ralph. Yep. Hope to go back. 
You can visit staugustinelighthouse.org to learn more. There are still a few more days of this season's Dark of the Moon tours, which you can book through the website. You know, I visited St. Augustine Lighthouse for the first time about four years ago. I loved it. It's a fantastic place. I think it's one of the the best kept uh, light stations in the country and very well uh, presented. Everybody there does a great job. I was there during the day. I would love to visit at night. It's always special being at a lighthouse at night, whether you believe in ghosts or not, I think. Right. Yes, it's definitely special being in a lighthouse at night. And you just have to be cautiously optimistic about those ghosts. Right, Jeremy? <laughs> yeah. Well, I always say I'm a, an open-minded skeptic. Open-minded skeptic, exactly. You know, I don't think every sound is a ghost, but I, you know, I, put, I do believe somebody like Ralph, he told me honestly what he experienced, and who am I to question it? I think it was exactly. a real experience. Yeah. So you can visit uslhs.org to learn more about the tours, the passport program, preservation grants, and everything the U.S. Lighthouse Society offers. Memberships and donations support this podcast and all the education and preservation projects of the USLHS. Over the next few weeks, we'll be hearing more of the interviews I recorded on my recent trip to Virginia and North Carolina. You know, it was really exciting for me to visit the Outer Banks and to see some of the most famous lighthouses of the country and some of the tallest lighthouses in the country, too. So do you have a quote about Halloween, Michelle? I sure do, Jeremy. I'm glad you asked. The comedian Rita Rudner once said, and I quote, Halloween was confusing. All my life, my parents said, never take candy from strangers. And then they dressed me up and said, go beg for it, end quote. I feel like we should have a little drum uh, rim shot there. Yeah. So with that, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thank you so much for listening and keep a good light. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine.